0: In a Christmas sermon uh, some years ago, Craig Barnes, the current Princeton Seminary uh, president, shared the following personal story from his own life. This is what he said. My father left us when I was 16, and once he left, he never stopped running. Every time we tried to find him, he would only leave and disappear again. He died alone in a raggedy trailer park somewhere in the middle of Florida. A neighboring pastor who did not know him spent two days trying to find his family, even though he did not know our names. My dad missed all of the important events in his son's lives, graduations, weddings, birth of children, our two ordinations, and both of our Ph.D. ceremonies. He missed all of it. I prayed and prayed that he would return to us. I used to yearn for the day that he would show up in a congregation where I was preaching. My longing was for him to come through the line at the end of the worship, take my hand and say, good job, son. But he never came. At his funeral, I stared at the casket and wondered, what happened to all of those prayers for him? Were they just lying around on the floor of heaven? When the service was over, my brother and I went to his little trailer in hopes of piecing together something about his life. And that was when we received the great Christmas gift. Sitting on his kitchen table was a devotional journal in which he had written his prayers and thoughts about various Bible passages. I was relieved to discover that he did not also abandon his faith. But then I came across a dog-eared, tattered page with the title Daily Prayer List at the top. The first two items on that list were my brother's name and my name. I will never understand the lonely madness that drove my father away from everyone who loved him. But I am so thankful to know that to his dying day, he never forgot us. He talked to God about us, even though for some reason he could not talk to us. There was enough grace in that to get me through. The grace was not that I received what I wanted. I did not find my father in time. The grace was that Jesus never lost him, and for me, the grace was that I then realized through all of those years of praying for my dad, I was speaking with the Heavenly Father who will never leave me or forsake me. What a great promise from God. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. We talked about that promise in the message last week, a promise that God makes to all who commit their ways to him. He promised Jacob, and he promises us as his people who follow Jesus today. He said, I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go. He's saying, I'm a heavenly father to you. I'm a good father. I won't forget about you. But sometimes you don't feel it. And you can't see it. So you might not realize all that comes with that promise. So today, we're going to explore the implications of God's presence with us. I've titled the message today, Since God is Always With Us. Since God is Always With Us. For those who may be just joining us in this sermon series, we've been studying the life of Jacob, seeking to learn some important spiritual lessons from his journey with God and we're calling it a disciple's life, the blessing and the limp. You get both when you walk with God. You get his blessing, but you also pick up a limp of some kind along the way from wrestling with God. Last week, we looked at the famous story of Jacob's ladder, the stairway to heaven, and how that was a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. He told us when he came to earth that he is the true stairway to heaven, and that the Father is always at the top of the ladder, and the angels are always being dispatched up and down the ladder for our care, whether we notice it or not. So wherever we are as believers in Christ, the ladder will be there. The stairway to heaven will be there connecting us to God through Jesus Christ. In our passage today, Uh, Jacob is on his way to Haran once again. It's a place nearly 600 miles northeast of his home in Beersheba. It's a long journey. And that's where his relatives live. I want to read our passage, which is rather long today, and I'm going to offer some very brief commentary uh, here and there along the way uh, toward getting to these implications of God's presence with us. So first, verses 1 through 8 of Genesis chapter 29. Follow along as I read. This is the word of God. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the field with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked them, Is he well? Yes, he is, they said. And here comes his daughter Rachel with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It's not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. In these verses, we find that God guides Jacob to the exact place he needed to go, to his uncle Laban's neck of the woods. Jacob's never been there. We also see that once all the flocks of sheep are gathered, the shepherds are going to join together and and move this big stone to uncover the well. And I want you to notice that the storyteller wants to be sure we see that the stone covering that well is really large. Then verses 9 and 10. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well, and watered his uncle's sheep. Did you catch that? Jacob did what? Jacob moved that huge stone all by himself. That's what the text says. The other shepherds didn't get a chance to pitch in. What's he doing? Well, he's romancing the stone, of course. But more than that, he's romancing the girl. Like a little boy, you know, showing off for the cute girl. Jacob shows off his muscles and moves this enormous rock off the well all by himself. And then he watered his uncle's sheep so that Rachel wouldn't have to. I'd say the sparks are beginning to fly. Verse 11 continues this romantic scene. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. Now, he's an emotional guy. What's going on here? Cue the string section, you know. Put the camera in slow-mo and move in for the close-up, right? Verses 12 through 14. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. There's a lot there in all see that? Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. Here, Jacob is meeting his uncle Laban for the very first time. And we're going to see as we go along that Laban is a guy who is always working the angles. It's almost like he has a currency converter for a brain. He just can translate everything into money and, and, you know, he does. So when Jacob tells Laban his story, Laban says, You are my own flesh and blood. And and we're going to see just how true that really is. (laughs) Verses 14 and 15. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, there's an old saying that guests and fish stink after three days. Nevertheless, Jacob is hanging around, he's sticking around, at least until he gets word that things have cooled down back at home with Esau. Laban's comment to Jacob is a bit sly. On the surface, it sounds like, "Uh, you know, I wouldn't want to take advantage of you. But what he's actually saying is, relative or not, you're going to work if you're staying here, and I'm your new boss. (laughs) Verses 16 to 18, the plot thickens. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. We've met Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you, he's talking to Laban, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, no one really knows exactly how the Hebrew, Hebrew description of Leah's eyes should be translated. It could mean that she was blind as a bat. It could mean that there was just no sparkle in her eyes, and that was a quality highly prized, highly valued in Mideastern culture. But whatever it is, it's pretty clear. Jacob only had eyes for Rachel. In fact, he offers Laban seven years of labor to secure her as his bride. Verses 19 through 21 tell us what happened next. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. That's not really a ringing endorsement of a son-in-law, is it? You're convenient. Why not? Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel. But they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to lie with her. That's pretty bold. How many of you said that to your future father-in-law? I can assure you I didn't. Um, But I got to say, that was some romance. If seven years only seemed like a few days by the end, Clearly, Jacob was tired of waiting. Let's get on with things. But now the story takes an incredible, strange twist. Verses 22 through 25. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. That's the wedding feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her, and Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. When morning came, there was Leah, and that says it all. Under the cover, you have to picture this, it's night. Under the cover of darkness, veils, gowns, and likely some alcohol, Laban slipped Leah into Jacob's tent on his wedding night instead of Rachel. Well, in the morning, Jacob, of course, is, he's outraged. And think about how Leah must have felt. Verses 25 and 26 tell us what happened next. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Let that hang in the air. Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Okay, fine, why didn't you tell me that seven years ago? This verse is dripping with irony. Remember how Jacob had told Laban his story, all these things? He included, I assume, some version of how he had come to get his father's blessing, how he had tricked his his older brother Esau. Now Jacob is on the other end of being tricked. What Laban is saying here is this. Where you come from, The younger may get the blessing, but in these parts, the firstborn always goes first. And just like that, (laughs) Jacob knows he's been had. What goes around, comes around. The story then comes to a close in verses 27 through 30. Laban says to Jacob, finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant girl Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. Now, the first seven years seemed like only a few days to him, but I'll bet the second seven years didn't fly by so quickly. Now tell me, as we read that story, uh, did you notice anything missing from it? Any, anything in particular that was noticeable to you that was missing from the story? Anyone? Anyone? Neither did Rachel. Well, did you notice? There's a significant player that's missing from this story. God. God. I, I, I dare you to look and find him there. You don't see him there. At least God is never mentioned in 30 long verses that cover a lot of years. Not once is he mentioned. Any and all prayerful activity is missing in Genesis 29. It's just not there. And this brings us back to where we started uh, in Jacob's stairway to heaven dream. God had said, I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go. God was certainly with Jacob through all the experiences we've just read about. No doubt he was there. But I don't think Jacob was very much aware of him. He doesn't seem to very much interact with him. He just didn't seem to realize what comes, what's part of God saying, I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go. And you and I might not realize it either. When God promises to be with you, and that promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, it's completed, and he's with us. When God promises to be with you, you may be getting more than you bargained for. And that's what I want to talk about for a few minutes this morning. There are three surprising implications of God's promise to be with you that you might not have considered. I wonder if Jacob considered that. Surprising implication number one. Since God is always with us, pray him into your story. Pray him into your story. What do I mean by that? Well, as I was thinking about this sermon... A conversation came back to me from some years ago and a friend was sharing how reluctant he was to ask for prayer for anything in his small group because his life was really you know, going along pretty well. Job, marriage, kids, health, you know, all good. Other people in his small group had some real problems that they were facing and that they needed prayer for. And to him, his concerns were just pretty ordinary day-to-day work issues that seemed trivial compared to what other people were facing. And I wonder if Jacob felt like that man at times. You know, he had just seen God in this amazing dream, and he had heard God's extraordinary promises, plus God had led him to the place he was trying to find. He had met a beautiful girl and gained a place to call home for now. Life was good. What more could he ask of God? But then the way things unfold, we see that, you know, even in the ordinary circumstances of life, even when our lives are blessed and are going well, we need to pray God into our stories. He is there. Are we aware? We need to pray God into our stories. It helps us be aware that God is there. Just think of all the ways. Uh, Jacob might have prayed for God's continued blessing and God's help. There were a few points along the way where he needed some help. (laughs) But never once, at least, do we catch him lifting up such prayers. Whatever you face, ask God to help you to see him in your story and to see yourself honestly as you're going along. So imagine, I want you to imagine yourself in Jacob's story? Put yourself right there into the story. Can you see yourself there? Given what you know about yourself, and I know that's a work in process for all of us, right? But given what you know about yourself, about your blind spots, your personality, your fears, your strengths, your weaknesses, what would those events have done to you? What would those events have done to you? To be working so hard, and to be so deeply deceived and used. Imagine that. Imagine that happening to you. Because you and I, we are always part of the story God is weaving. And that's what Jacob did not do in this situation. He just didn't pray God into his story. I wonder how it might have been different if he had talked with God about Well, let's start with how deceptive he had been with his own family. You know, had he talked with God about all the damage he had done to his soul and to his relationships? How might that have affected his interactions with Laban? I think we are seldom sufficiently aware of our own hearts. Our sins, our fears, our baggage from life, the abuse done to us, our blind spots, our broken places, our idols of the heart. So we seldom pray about them over the long haul of our lives. We do it first. We do for a while. We do now and then. But then we just kind of give up on it. Those are the things that shape our hearts and our experiences and our relationships going forward. Jack Miller, in his book, Saving Grace, writes this in the devotional for September 25th. This is what he says. God is running a beautification program. I don't know about you, but I'm really glad about that. God is running a beautification program. He's turning those who are depressed, discouraged, and overwhelmed with the ugliness of their own existence and who do not know they're headed for hell into beautiful vessels, filled with joy, with a song in their hearts and on their lips. He brings glory to his name by going into situations where people are hopeless and helpless and changing them. God wants us to pray that we might have the courage to live before him in ways that are not natural to us. There is nothing else that will make us able to do our work, to see the power in the gospel, and to get away from our deadness than to pray. To breathe for us is to pray. Pray at all times. Pray God into your story, because he is present at all times. But are you aware of him? Are you consciously in relationship with him, walking with him? Whatever I face, I need to ask God for wisdom, for guidance. Prayer helps me see God in the picture and helps me evaluate moral aspects of the situation. Prayer helps me think of factors I've completely forgotten or haven't even considered. And whatever you face, thank God as you see his kindness. Wherever you see his mercy, his goodness, his faithfulness, we never catch Jacob thanking God for anything here, for the safe journey, the remarkable direction in the dark. The new family to be part of, the beautiful girl for a wife. But when we're determined to be grateful to God, we start to develop this eye. He develops it in us—an eye for God's handiwork in our environment. We we begin to spot God's footprints and and begin to understand a bit of how He is at work. We begin to experience what you could call God sightings. You know, in the course of your day, do you have some God sightings? Gratitude is what develops God-oriented, God-aware people who see him more and trust him more. So I wonder how Jacob's story might have been different if he had acknowledged how God was with him, how God had led him, if he had prayed for wisdom and protection, if he had admitted his own faults and needs, if he had talked with God about Laban and with Laban about God he had thanked God for his provision. I think the lesson for us is clear. Since God is always with us, we must pray him into our story, or we may miss him. There's a second surprising implication for us because of the presence of God. Surprising implication number two. Since God is always with us, believe you are part of his plan. Believe you are part of his Take Jacob as an example. Jacob's life was a tangled, painful, heartbreaking mess. It was a mess with Isaac, Rebekah, and Esau back in Beersheba, and now it's a mess in Haran with Laban, Leah, and Rachel. He made a mess of things wherever he went. It was a mess. But it was not a hopeless mess because all those gnarly, tangled, messy knots were on the back of God's tapestry as God was weaving a beautiful picture of promise and blessing on the front. And we don't get to see the front quite yet. We're going to talk about more, more about this in the next sermon. But for now, let, re, let me remind you of what was happening here uh, on God's main stage, if you will. I want you to consider that God would give to Leah the unloved wife of Jacob, four sons in quick succession. And one of them, Levi, would become the forefather of Moses. And another, Judah, would be the forefather of David, whose line would produce Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. So Jacob's life was a mess. Yes, it was. But it was not a hopeless mess. It was a fine mess. Let's call it a fine mess. Such a fine mess, because God was with him always and everywhere. And Jacob, by God's grace, was part of God's great plan. And I want to remind you that the days of God's people being part of God's grand plan are not over. They did not end with the patriarchs. They continue with you. And I think sometimes in life's ordinariness and messiness, we forget that God's promise uh, is as much to us as it was to Jacob. I am with you. It's the heart of the covenant promise. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And that means that you are part of God's grand, gracious, beautiful, eternal plan. You are. You are. Yes, you. There's a third and final implication. Surprising implication number three, since God is always with us, expect to experience his discipline. I don't particularly like that. Expect to experience his discipline. God had given to Jacob this, this grace-filled blessing that just poured it down upon his life. But Jacob was also in need of some serious character cleansing, wouldn't you say? I suspect that did not occur to Jacob on the night God assured him, I am with you and will watch over you. That means, Jacob, I see you. (laughs) We're going to work on some things, Jacob. Yes, we are. So God's promise, this is so important, God's promise is actually at work when Laban tricks Jacob. It looks like a classic case of what goes around comes around, bait and switch, or you reap what you sow. But there's a lot more to it than that. God is doing the work of a a loving father, a loving father in Jacob's slippery life. Commentator Derek Kidner sums it up nicely. This is what he says. In Laban, Jacob met his match and his means of discipline. Twenty years of drudgery and friction were to weather his character. And the reader can reflect that presumably Jacob is not the only person to have needed a Laban in his life. In other words, have you ever needed a Laban in your life? I have. Sometimes maybe I've been Laban, right? The point is God is running a beautification program on us, and he's going to use Laban. Jacob never grasped what kind of deceitful man he himself truly was until he met his match in Laban. On that fateful morning after, when Laban said, you know, it's not our custom around here to give the younger before the firstborn, Jacob could see himself. What an opportunity for Jacob to see himself for the deceiver he was. Laban was like a mirror in which Jacob could finally see himself, his deception. Laban was indeed Jacob's own flesh and blood. We're simpatico, right? So despite all the heartache, Jacob was slowly but surely being shaped into a man who would wrestle with God and not quit. Through all the heartache, Jacob was being formed into a man of faith who would one day, get this, be able to bless his own sons, his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, with God's very words of blessing. I'm not sure Jacob realized that he had been enrolled in God's school of discipleship, a.k.a. the school of hard knocks that produces holiness. At this point in Jacob's story, you don't see much in the way of holiness in his life or much in the way of awareness of God's presence on his part. I find that oddly comforting in the struggles of my life. He's not a man to whom you could safely listen or who you could imagine being a source of blessing to you. Am I right? There's no particular holiness in him calling you to listen to his words. In fact, quite the opposite. But the God who is with him is at work. And the God who is with him is getting him there. And I can relate to that so much. Uh, This week... I took some time away, a day to be away with the church staff at the shore, and then a few days more to be away just with the Lord. And a book I read while away, I had a quote in it from a man named John O'Donohue that really grabbed me because it was about the presence of God and holiness in our lives. And the quote went like this, Only holiness will call people to listen. He's talking about our current climate. Only holiness will call people to listen. And the work of holiness is not about perfection or niceness. It is about belonging. That sense of being in the presence of God and through the quality of that belonging, the mild magnetic, I love that phrase, the mild magnetic of implicating others into the presence of God. This is not about forging a relationship with a distant God, but about the realization that we are already within God because of Jesus. You know, there have been times and seasons in my life when I wasn't much aware of the presence of God and when it wasn't the holiness of my life that was calling you to listen. It was other things. It was my perfectionism, my pride my need to be right, my need to be the smartest person in the room, my need to get my way, my need to be in control of things, all in the name of Jesus, of course. Those were the things that sometimes were calling out to you to listen. But why should you? Why should you? I know some of you felt that from me at times in my ministry, and I'm so sorry. The God who has been with me all along, the Savior who brought me into the Father's presence and kept me there when I was unaware, he was running that beautification program to get me there, where he wants me to be, a place where I can begin to discover something about humility and something about holiness, where it's not about me at all, but it's all about him. It's just all about him. And God has had to use some very strange, to my way of thinking, strange and painful tools like alcohol addiction and recovery to break down some very stubborn strongholds in me that I just could not see. But here I am today, alive and well and with you, and I mean really with you, really with you, free, forgiven, a broken man who is being made whole by the grace of God to me in Jesus Christ, I get to be part of his great plan. That, to me, that's just absolutely mind-blowing. It's amazing. So my prayer now, my hope now, is that when you hear me now, you can hear him. That's what I for. That's what I want for you. So having God with us means, you know, facing ourselves in the mirror of our relationships and our circumstances. Those are God's mirror for us to see ourselves rightly, that we can repent and believe the gospel and the Holy Spirit can get to work transforming us. So I just want to end by asking, are you facing something that's making you face who you really are? You'll want to say it's about something else. It's about Laban. Are you facing something that God wants to use to help you to face who you really are? What you're truly like? That's the way it is when God is with us. Expect to experience his discipline. We will experience his discipline from time to time if we are, as the Bible says, his daughters and his sons. He disciplines those he loves because God is running a beautification program, and that's a fact question is, will you get with the program? Will we get with the program? Amen? Amen. Let's uh, worship team come up, prayer team come up, spend a few minutes just wrestling with God, whatever it is that God, where uh, he's ever touching your heart.